So I'd like to speak this evening about the uh, theme of the weekend, being here. We find ourselves here, in this moment and in this life. It's something of a discovery if we actually allow ourselves to open to it to discover that we are here. We could say somewhat suspended between the processes of birth and death. We are born without asking, without planning, without organising it. We don't have much to do with that process, at least not that we remember until it happens. And at some point it will come to an end, perhaps not in such way as we expect and very likely not as we choose. We will die. And so here we are in the midst of that reality. And one of the features of life is that it doesn't come with an instruction book. We're not born with a set of sort of guidelines that tell us how to live or what to do in order to make our life meaningful. The process of meditation and spiritual practice is actually a process whereby we come to discover that there are or there is what we could call an instruction book. The The art of meditation is to actually discover the instructions for our life that are revealed by our very life itself. To understand what it means to be here and what is actually useful, what is actually helpful in how we relate to, how we understand and how we respond to this fundamental and profound fact that we are here. Even though it may seem at times that we're not here as much as we're trying to be when we're seeking to be present. Nonetheless, there is something about us that is here and that we can explore. Being on retreat as we have been these days from last evening through today rather a longer period we actually engage in solitude and meditation practice and the discipline of being alone and being attentive to our experience looking, sensing feeling into what is going on in this experience that we call me being alive that we have ideas about and yet maybe haven't yet fully understood we begin to sense, we begin to feel our life more keenly when we place ourselves in such a situation more vividly or more deeply we start to actually sense some of what it is to be, to be alive, to be in existence at all. We start to notice things about how we are, about the ways we relate, the ways we react, how we habitually occupy our time and our energy with the uh, with the activity of mind that often takes us away from where we are. And we notice as we start to face and to feel our life more clearly, more directly, which is really what we're doing. We're coming back again and again. We're coming back to our life. We're coming back to our experience. We're coming back to the to the remarkable truth that we are here, which we so easily forget. We so easily lose touch. And in coming back and making this, establishing this, deepening this relationship to the fact that we are here, consciously, one thing that starts to become clear, that we start to notice, is that this can be incredibly challenging. This is not easy. What we are undertaking here is one of the most demanding things that a human being can undertake. Goethe, the... uh, 
German philosopher once said, all truly noble human endeavours are as difficult as they are rare. And what we're engaged in is something that is difficult, that is not common, and that is truly noble to understand what it means to be alive, to awaken our life. Through trusting and entering more and more fully and deeply into the simple fact that we are here. And yet, it's hard. It's hard to do. We notice that often our experience is something that is other than as we wish. Our body is not at ease sometimes, or it's weary. Our mind is agitated or fragmented or confused or dopey or reactive. We see that this experience is maybe not so different than our life. What we see in meditation, what we see on retreat, is simply our life revealed to us in a particular, in a specific circumstance or situation. But what we see is not different than our life. And what we see of our mind and how it is, how we relate to our life, is not different here than any other time. But because we're paying attention, we begin to see it more clearly. We begin to feel it more directly. We can see at times that we're confronted with that which is unwelcome, pain and discomfort, dullness and weariness, anxiety, confusion, fear, loneliness, anger, regret, loneliness, sadness. So many different things can touch us. We can sense them. Perhaps we don't feel them too closely, but we can start to notice that they're not so far away from our life as we might have wished or hoped or believed. Not to say that this is all of our experience, but it's useful to notice that there is this element, there is this stream flowing through experience that is not easy to be with. Because it conditions a lot of how we move, and it conditions a lot of what we see in our practice. The fact that a certain aspect of our experience is not easy for us, or a range of things we encounter are other than what we think for. <coughs> because how we tend to respond to this, when we don't examine it, when we don't look carefully at it, is we tend to live our life in the hope, the false hope, that somehow by escaping, avoiding, transcending, getting around those difficult experiences, whether the subtle inner experiences of resistance, or the major challenges and complications of our lives in terms of work and relationships and taking care of our material needs. We tend to think, we tend to believe that somehow the purpose of our life, the intention of our journey is to get to some other place, some other condition or some other circumstance where these difficult things do not arise, where there are no challenges where there is no pain, where everything is as we would wish it to be. And it sounds lovely, why not? Of course, if we could do this, it would make sense. But what we see in this process is that there's a, a constant motion, a movement, a seeking and a pursuing of things, of situations, of people, of experiences, trying to get somewhere else, trying to be someone else, trying to have something else, that we constantly look towards the future for our satisfaction, look towards that which is not actually here, in the hope that when we get there, then we will come to rest, then we will be happy, then we will feel satisfied. And this process can drive our life. We need to understand it. We need to see that the wish to control or to fix or to manipulate our experience, 
particularly that experience that's difficult, leads us to a relationship of stress, of pressure, of fragmentation and disconnection from our life. We can see how much pressure in our mind there is. Pressure that we put on ourselves to achieve, to be good at meditation. Pressure we put on our body to be calm, to be still, to not distract or disturb people by needing to be moved. Can we notice what that's like when we do it? How it is to put pressure on our experience to be different than it is? Quite simply, it's suffering. It's painful. And yet, the belief that we often operate from is that if we do this well enough, when we perfect this, then we will succeed and things will be as we want them to be. And in doing so, we give power and authority to our experience as being the basis of our happiness or equally the basis of our lack of happiness. Now, the problem with experience, which we begin to notice as we practice in meditation, is that it's not in our control. We can't make it happen the way we want it. Have you noticed what it's like trying to control your mind? This that feels so close to us, so intimately who we think we are, our mind. And does it do what you tell it? Will it be quiet and calm for just five minutes to give you a break? Will it be attentive to the breath? Not a particularly onerous thing to ask. Not something that seems so complicated, you know. A ten-year-old child would understand completely what that meant. And your average person, probably having never meditated, would think it would be easy to just be attentive to the breath for even a few minutes. Yet we see how hard that is. This is important to recognize. If our mind, which seems so close to us, is not able to be made to do what we tell it, how much hope do we have of this world conforming with what we wish? Other people being the way we want them to. Look at our body. Do we notice as it slowly ages, even if it's still relatively young, we see how it doesn't fit in with how we want it. And the older it gets, the less and less likely it is to do so. It doesn't become more likely. It becomes less. Now this might sound like bad news. You think, oh gosh. <laughs> so that's what this is all about, getting the bad news, and then we can all be sort of happily miserable and go home. If we look at the weather, we see we can't control that either. But we understand that that's so. We don't really seriously attempt to make it different. I have to say, despite what I've just uh, suggested, I have on occasion noticed myself, and I remember once on a retreat where I was in a cabin in the woods in um, the south of France, in just a very small space indoors, um, and it was raining for days and days. And I noticed myself at one point sitting there, almost sort of my teeth sort of gritting, my fist clenched, willing the rain to stop. <laughs> I try harder, you know. And in seeing it, of course, one just has to laugh. But, you know, it's like, of course, how ridiculous. It's going to make no difference. It just makes you tight and uncomfortable. But we do that so often with our experience. We somehow think if we try harder, it'll just fall into place. But it doesn't. It just becomes actually less comfortable to inhabit our lives. <coughs> We see in the schedule of the retreat, it's kind of simple. We have to, well, we don't absolutely have to, but we're invited, we're encouraged to follow it. Partly because it means giving up the illusion and the idea and the appearance of doing what we want, being in control of what's happening. And what we see is as we go through the sitting and the walking, the standing, the eating, the various phases of the day, the working, sometimes we like it and it's nice, sometimes we don't like it, and thought it not nice or difficult. Sometimes it seems useful and beneficial, sometimes it seems meaningless and pointless. And yet, through this whole process, we might question, is it really the case that the experiences we're having are what our happiness depends upon? 
Because if they are, we've got problems. Serious problems. Because if we're making what is most important to us rest upon something that seems to be kind of random, out of control, not able to be fixed, or sustained in a particular way, then we're not going to have a lot of success, it would seem. It's like this great story, one of my favourite story of uh, Mullah Nasruddin, who um, is uh, found one day on his hands and knees in the evening and on the side of the street looking for something amongst the stones and the rubbish. And Mullah is uh, regarded as a wise man and a fool and uh, a, a famous Sufi teaching figure. And his friend comes along and sees him there. He says, he says oh, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? Nazaruddin replied, I've lost my key. I've lost my key. I can't get into my house. Can you help me look for it, please? And so the man, his friend, gets down on his hands and knees and together they're sort of looking through the stones and the pebbles and the unsavory bits of rubbish and, you know, and they're under the lamp in the evening. They're looking and after some time the friend says, Mullah, we've looked all through this piece of the, um, the street. Are you sure you lost your key? And uh, Nazarin looks at him. He replies, Oh no, I lost my key in the back garden. But the light is much better here. <laughs> it's like looking in the obvious place. It seems. It appears that would be the place to look because we can see what's there. Whereas in the dark of the garden we can't see, we don't know. We have to look outside of the familiar. We have to be willing to look in a different direction. To look in a different place than we have already been looking. Because if what we were looking was looking for was in the place we've been looking, we'd have found it by now, wouldn't we? If getting more nice food, more nice sounds, more nice tastes, feelings, experiences, whether external things such as cars and houses and jobs and relationships or inner experiences such as moments of bliss or happiness or peace all of which are fine and have their place but if such experiences could do it for us they would have done it by now because we've all had them we've all had them but they didn't last or they lasted but they stopped being so (coughs) nourishing for us we just suddenly found they weren't quite what we wanted So what do we do in this situation? This is really the question of our lives. What do we do? Here we are. Life goes on. It comes pouring in through our eyes and our ears and our nose and our tongue and our body. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touches. And through our mind, thoughts and feelings, life pours in. Have you noticed, did you try and stop it pouring in at any point today? How much success did you have? I'm trying to be with my breath. Life, you know, could you please slow down? Could you calm down? But it doesn't. Sometimes it seems, for a little while it might and can and does. But that's not to do with our controlling or fixing it or getting it right. That's more to do with when we stop looking for something special from it. We stop investing in it the authority to give us happiness or satisfaction or peace and actually start to give more attention to this simple fact that we are here. Because we are here. And do we know how remarkable that is that we are here? Do you know how this thing works? If you've studied any biology or medicine or science, or not even studied it, but just have a glancing, passing knowledge of it, you realize that this is a remarkably complicated thing that's going on here, sitting in front of you, or sitting beside you, or sitting inside your clothes, thinking about what's going on inside these clothes, which is what's going on for you perhaps right now. It's a remarkably complicated thing. What distinguishes it from this thing that's going to be sitting here one day, or lying, and then no longer be alive? At some point it will happen to all of these things sitting in here. And what will make that different than what's happening right now? Sure, the sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and all that will stop. 
that much we know. But what's going to happen? What's that going to be like? Is there going to be like anything? Are we going to be there tonight? If we don't take our existence itself for granted, we don't presume that it's going to be happening this time next year or this time next week because there is no guarantee. For people like you and me today, it stopped. Sometimes at the end of a long and full life with a sort of a polite period of warning indicating it's coming to that phase. And for some, not at all. Just boom, gone. That's it. Happens just like that every day. To people like you and me. So what makes sense when we're here? Because we are. And we have no certainty for how long this condition will continue. Because that's the truth of our life. And the truth, that truth, has perhaps a greater significance than where we are, what we're doing, who we think ourselves to be, our successes or our failures, or our perceptions of those two things. So what do we see in this experience of being here? What goes on? Paying attention to the breath, noticing as we take a step, being interested in what's going on, isn't just because we want to notice how many breaths we take in a day or notice how many times we forget to notice that we're taking a breath or a step or whatever. Sure, that's useful because we see how our mind is. We start to understand it. And we start to steady and calm and stabilize it, all of which is wholesome and useful and beneficial, without a doubt. So we do this process, but equally as for that, and perhaps ultimately more so, is to see what's happening in here. To open a window into our mind, into our heart, into our life, and examine our life. Much of what we see happening is the tendency to escape, the movement away from. It's kind of like, get me out of here. We say, be here? That's not a bad place. Nobody's beating me with sticks. They provide food. The work isn't actually that onerous. It's relatively comfortable. Um, you know, no one's sort of at me to get ahead and sort of succeed and produce results. And yet we think, hey, that might be a nice place to hang out. But it's like this habit, this tendency of the mind to depart, to move away from where we are, to escape. To actually examine that. To see how underlying it often is some degree of restlessness, of boredom, of fear, of pain, of dissatisfaction, of a sense of this is not enough, this cannot be enough, there must be something more. And yet, this is what there is. This is our life. And we sometimes find ourselves thinking, you know, what am I doing here? What am I doing meditating? It's hopeless. I can't keep my mind in one place. My body's aching, you know. This doesn't seem to make any sense. Or if it does, I can't do it. Maybe it's useful for other people. We see that sense of, what, what's the point of all this? So we, we kind of go through a period of practice when sometimes it's hard, we're struggling. We open our eyes, we sort of had enough. Now 20 minutes is way too long, let alone the full length of the sitting. We look around and everyone's really calm and still and obviously deep and profound meditation is very close to some remarkable spiritual experience or enlightenment or whatever. Are we going to be, ah, you know, I'm definitely in the wrong place. These guys, they're all in the right place, but me, no, no, I shouldn't be here. And then sometimes that happens and we kind of just sort of give up. Or we think, no, not for me. Not realising that, of course, the moment we close our eyes and sit down quietly, we just kind of resign. It's okay, I'll try and be here. Someone else opens their eyes, looks around, and goes, oh, that person beside me, who a moment ago had their eyes open, was thinking, oh, why do they look so calm, so serene? <laughs> Obviously something's really profound happening for them. And so there's like there's these different levels of what's going on. There's my idea of what's going on, my thoughts about what's going on, and then there's what's actually going on, which is that there's <coughs> like a 
a quietness and a calmness that's actually deepening in our being. Our mind might still be busy, our body might still be restless, but there's something that's actually shifting that begins to just kind of gather energy. When we're not giving so much of our energy away into activity, into busyness, into trying to build something up to succeed, or trying to build ourselves up to become better. But we're actually constantly bringing ourselves back, bringing the energy of our life back. It's like it gathers, it collects, it starts to stabilize. And, and we might actually then start to sense that there is something here to discover. We hear, you know, maybe teachings that say there's nowhere to go. And at one level it's a relief. We think, oh, phew, I was so tired of trying to get somewhere. But at another level we think, nowhere to go, nowhere to go, I want to get somewhere. Sort of like all dressed up and nowhere to go. Frustrated, we want to go somewhere. And yet between these two experiences, noticing sometimes, ah, how attractive it seems to have nowhere to go. And other times how barren, how desperately empty that condition seems. Yet that's just our mind, again, relating one way with attraction, one moment with attraction, another moment with resistance or aversion. But we're here. This is the nature of what's going on. We are here. There is nowhere else to go. There is no escape. We can sometimes escape our experience. We can go, we can escape from something that's uncomfortable in our body by getting lost in some fantasy. We can sometimes escape from difficult feelings that happen by trying really hard and really being mindful and really being focused and not noticing that actually we're really upset or really hurt or really angry or really bruised or lonely. Or we can escape by projecting our life into the future and trying to figure out the scenario in which all our problems will be solved, all our hopes will be realized. And yet all of those escape. So we sometimes get some temporary relief. Just as when we are feeling discomfort, we straighten our leg and the discomfort goes away, which is fine. Sometimes that's appropriate. But ultimately, we cannot escape our mind. And it is our mind, the condition of our mind. And by mind, I'm not just referring to the intellectual thinking process that we talk about in the West, but the heart-mind. The heart-mind, in the language of the Buddha, these two are kind of understood together. The word is chitta, um, which is probably best translated as heart-mind. That which is affected and responds. That which is affected and responds or reacts to life, that which can be touched and that which can touch another or something else. This we cannot escape. And the condition of this is most important to us. Our own well-being turns on the condition of our heart and mind. And likewise the well-being of others that we might also care for. So to not escape, to not desert our heart and our mind, this is what it means to be here, to turn towards, to open into our heart and our mind. And as we do that, we see that the reactivity of resisting, rejecting, condemning, judging, avoiding, so many aspects of what goes on, our feelings, our thoughts that we don't like, that we think are wrong, that are unspiritual, the emotions that we find unsettling or scary or threatening, or just too raw and tender to allow ourselves to touch. Seeing how we have this tendency of want to escape or avoid them, or fix them. And how there's those moments and experiences where we, we like something, we're, we're, we're touched by something, we're moved by something. And in that, rather than actually just allowing ourselves to be touched, allowing ourselves to receive the, the sweetness of a simple step in which we just feel the earth, or the beauty of a tree with the light shining upon its leaves or its bare branches in winter. So quickly we move from that sense of appreciation of being touched to a sense of kind of wanting to get hold of it. We start trying to figure out, what did I do to make this happen? How did it come to be? What shall I do to make it happen again? And of course we've lost it in that very moment. 
but we're trying to grab hold of it. But there's tendencies of mind to try and take hold of, try and push away. They overwhelm us and they do not serve us. And the tendency we have, the, the addiction we have to seek distraction, to seek fantasy, to seek to be unconscious. Like we come here and we think at some level, yes, I want to be awake. We do believe that and it's true for us. But there are also levels of our being in which we don't want to be awake because it's too complicated or too painful or too unpredictable and scary. And we need to understand that some part of us actually is trying to go to sleep. And this has perhaps been given a lot of power in our lives. If we've lived our life unconsciously, for the most part, the habits and tendencies of disconnection, of distraction, <coughs> of escape, are very strong. And to begin with, a lot of what we feel and practice is their power. And we need to stay steady in the face, and we see how we, how we yearn for something to entertain us. You know, we, we come and we're invited not to read books. And you're walking past the library, it's like this temptation. We think, wow, there's probably lots of interesting good stuff in there, and it's going to be more interesting than what's going on in my stuff, my story, my mind. Or we find ourselves making a cup of tea, and we only wanted a cup of tea, but actually, we pick up the box with the tea bags. We start reading about where they come from, and it's fascinating, it's remarkable. Wow, this tea comes from Salon, and they make it from the finest tea leaves. Wow, that's good. And hand packs, you know, organic, wow. And we find ourselves reading the box. And then, if we don't realise it's happened, we read the box again. Cause, not because it's particularly interesting, just because it's somewhere to go. Somewhere else to be. But having read the box, at some point we realise it and we think, hmm, what was that? It's not like we actually feel you know, deeply fulfilled and want to share this with all our friends. We should read that tea box. with good, you know. But this happens, doesn't it? It happens. You know, it's like in our minds too. We're sort of just being present, and something pops up and says, "Hello there, hi. I've got some entertainment. I've got some useful story here, or I've got I've got the solution for your problems." And we think, "Oh, great! That's what I want." And we find ourselves following it off down that line. So at some point, we realise, "Oh, that we jumped on a train, and it looked like it was the luxury first-class carriage we were getting onto, but..." Turned out we had the wrong ticket. We got sent off down to the sort of, you know, the, the, the goods carriage, and it was kind of uncomfortable. And we ended up somewhere we didn't know where we were. We think, oh, we get off the train, we come back, come back to where we are. Learning to inhabit our life wholeheartedly. This is what it means to be here. Learning to trust our life. Learning to trust what is being revealed right now as the basis, as the invitation for establishing a wise and compassionate relationship. Because it is the relationship that we form with our life that makes the difference. And the relationship that is informed by wisdom, by understanding how things are, that is informed by kindness and caring, for the way things are. This is the relationship in which true satisfaction is found. And this relationship can be formed with any and every experience once we understand that this is possible and that this is the only way to truly liberate our life from the containment or the bondage of dissatisfaction of limitation and of contraction. Learning to turn towards our life. This is our practice. And it's not something necessarily so complicated. There's a beautiful sort of and yet rather also simple and almost too sweet, sort of saccharine sweet saying that I came across as a, I guess probably as my um, childhood I would have first seen it, and I remember it on a little sort of picture on my neighbor's, in my neighbour's kitchen of a little 
little girl with a, a bonnet and a basket and uh, it said don't worry, don't hurry and don't forget to sniff the flower and you know there's some remarkable and profound wisdom in that Eastern spiritual teaching and in the West but sometimes something simple like that just actually speaks to us more directly and also shows us that this is not something esoteric don't worry, don't hurry and don't forget to sniff the flower how much of our life do we hurry through it? rushing, rushing through our life there's been, remarkable, been some remarkable movies made in recent years of just sort of like bird's eye view of, of what's going on in a city street. And you see these people whizzing around, whizzing around. If we stop when we come on a retreat, we feel the momentum of busyness in our life <coughs> spinning. We're asked just to be still. And if we are still, at least in our body and slowly our mind and heart also calm and steady, the momentum is actually released takes time, just like a flywheel or a mill wheel that spins even when you stop pushing but we see how much we hurry hurry towards a future that we cannot predict or control that doesn't necessarily turn out to be better than the place we were hurrying to it from don't hurry actually take time for what is now this is what we learn to do Don't worry. How much of our life is driven by anxiety? Anxiety is like the, the social disease of our time, the cultural malaise of our Western world. And its effects are devastating, personally and socially. Living with anxiety. So much of conflict and war is born out of the seeking for security, the end of fear and anxiety. And it doesn't bring it. Can we remember that the pressure of fear and anxiety is not something we wish to make our life an expression of? Because it actually takes us away from what is precious and important. <coughs> Anxiety and fear is something we need to explore and understand. It often lies underneath our disinclination to be present. There can be many difficult experiences that we face in our lives, past, present and perhaps future. And often the fear that we have is that we cannot meet, we cannot face, we cannot cope with this. And learning to actually meet our life, we see that fear and anxiety take us away from where we are, into the past trying to understand the causes of our problem, and into the future trying to find the solution, but almost inevitably not succeeding in doing so. Anxiety is something that happens right now. If you can remember that, this will really serve you. It's always an experience happening in the present. It has a story about the future, about what's going to happen, but it hasn't yet. In the uncertainty and the unknowableness of the future, there's lots of room for fear to get a grip. Anxiety thrives in the unknownness of the future and drives us to seek to make it known, which we cannot do. But to actually turn back towards the fact of anxiety and to see <coughs> anxiety is actually a really unpleasant experience. Fear is like the quintessentially unpleasant experience. And actually being able to meet that experience, to feel it, to touch it, to be with it, and to see the difference between that experience and the story about our life that it generates. The story that I'm no good, the story that it's going to turn out horribly wrong, the story that I can't cope. There's a great quote from Mark Twain. He commented once, Almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. It's like worrying about things is the worst experiences of our life and most of the things we worry about don't happen. And when they do, we can address them. 
until they happen, we can't really do much about them at all because they're not there. They don't actually exist. So coming back into our experience, coming back to where we are, coming back to our life, training the heart and mind to be more present, to be more connected, to open, to embrace those places of unease, those places of discomfort in our lives. We're not seeking to escape them, but they are not obstacles. They are the gateways inevitably. They are those things that we have given authority and power by saying that while this is here, I cannot be happy. Or while this is here, I cannot be here. And therefore, we become alienated from our lives. We lose touch with the vitality of our being, our aliveness, which is here and only here. And yet when we see that even the difficult, even the challenging, even the threatening, when we actually bring a sense of caring, of kindness, of a caring for our life and the conditions that have brought us to this situation, to this experience, a caring for others around us as well, that from that caring we find a courage to actually touch our life, because our life asks us from us to touch it, to meet it, to be amidst it, within it, and yet to become conscious, to become awake of what that is, to what that is, to what that signifies, requires remarkable patience to again and again come back, to again and again connect, to reconnect, to actually acknowledge to ourselves and to meet those places that are not easy, not easy to bear, not easy to see. We might find ourselves embarrassed to discover jealousy or anger or judgment. And yet equally to notice that that's embarrassing. We can include that too. Or greediness, selfishness. If we start to allow space to see what is there that we don't wish to see, we'll also notice that there are many moments of, of kindness, of nobility, of generosity, of beauty in our lives and in our experience and in what unfolds from our heart. When we start to open, we see the fullness of our life both the places where we've learned and grown wise and equally those places where we have yet to do our learning and our growing. And our journey is to honour those qualities that are wholesome and beneficial that are within us already. The courage that it takes simply to do this work. Even if it feels like we're getting nowhere. We're cultivating patience. We're cultivating courage. We're cultivating resolve. And the thought that says we're getting nowhere isn't telling the truth. Because when we come from that intention, from that aspiration to be present, to be more and more fully what our life is possible to be, that itself is transformative. Though we can't always directly see or measure what is changing within us, we need to trust the goodness of that aspiration and that intention. The Buddha once said, if it were not possible to do this, I would not ask you to. If it were not possible to transform your heart and your mind, you would not be asked this. But because it is possible, therefore, I do ask you to. To actually bring our full potential, to make manifest our full potential through simply being present. Being present with that quality of focus, of collectedness. We see how we gather. We gather our life and bring the vitality and the brightness of our being more and more fully into focus where we are. With that sense of gathering, we, we cultivate a quality equally of allowing, of accepting, of receptivity, that has a natural kindness in it that allows what is there to be allows ourselves to be. This allows us to come closer. And this also releases some of the energy that's caught up in our resistance and our struggle. So we're gathering energy through focusing, through collecting. Sometimes concentrating is not such a good word. It sounds a bit tight and a bit forced. We're gathering and collecting. We're releasing the energy that's caught up in resistance and struggle through allowing ourselves to open again and again. 
And that energy, that brightness, that vitality, we start to focus in a process of curiosity, of interest, of seeking to understand what is it that's going on here. Our thoughts and feelings keep changing. Our experience keeps changing. Have you noticed? <coughs> but just as the breath comes and goes, arises and passes, so too does all experience. Because of this, the experiences themselves cannot give us lasting satisfaction. All that comes goes. So we cannot and need not try and rest our happiness or well-being on the things that come and go. But to actually bring a relationship to bear on experience, born of wisdom and compassion, born of caring from and interest in what is happening, what we see is that this very fact of conscious presence, this very being that is here, being here, what is it that is being? What is it to be here? If we start to ask that question with the depths of our heart, how being responds, it's this, which doesn't really do much for our minds, our thinking, so what I knew was this, but it's this. There's something in us that hears that, that recognizes what that represents. It's not in the words, but it's this, being here, it's this, it's already here. What is the quality of presence that can meet unconditionally? Each moment, each experience, each breath, each thought, each sensation, whether pleasurable or unpleasant that can meet and embrace those moments when we're lost, equally as those moments when we reconnect and are present again. That quality of presence, that quality of being, that can meet each moment unconditionally, without demanding something from it, without trying to do anything to it. In that quality of presence, the boundness of our life begins to dissolve. The shallowness of our life begins to deepen. And uh, the sense of our life being somewhere else is shown to be not so. And our life, where it is right now, starts to reveal the dimension that is not conditioned that is not dependent on things that come and go. The path opens up when we actually turn towards our life wholeheartedly, when we allow the momentum and the busyness to dissipate, as it does slowly and by itself, when we stay interested and connected, when we stop trying to get something from the world. Stop trying to fix ourselves. And yet, look deeply into what it is to be here. Rio Khan. 18th century Zen monk and poet. He once wrote, The rain has stopped, the storm has passed, and the sky is clear again. When your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself. Then the moon and the flower will guide you along the way.
So could we just sit quietly for a minute or two, please? May these reflections be a contribution to your practice and may your practice lead to the deepening of wisdom and compassion and the discovery of what it means to be here for your welfare and the welfare of all beings.